Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 244th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and versatile actors in the business, a man who first made his name on two comedic TV programs, Comedy Central's The Daily Show from 1999 through 2004 and NBC's The Office from 2005 through 2011, and who has also done outstanding work in films of all sorts, from comedies like 2003's Bruce Almighty, 2004's Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, 2005's The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and 2011's Crazy Stupid Love, to dramedies like 2006's Little Miss Sunshine, 2007's Dan in Real Life, 2012's Hope Springs, 2013's The Way Way Back, 2015's The Big Short, and 2017's Battle of the Sexes and Last Flag Flying, to straight-up dramas like 2014's Foxcatcher, and, most recently, Beautiful Boy, a film unveiled at September's Toronto International Film Festival and released in theaters Friday by Amazon that was adapted from the true story of a man, played by Carell, fighting to help his son, played by Oscar nominee Timothy Chalamet, as the son becomes ensnared by addiction. I'm talking, of course, about the once Oscar-nominated, six-time Emmy-nominated, eight-time SAG Award-nominated, and nine-time Golden Globe-nominated, and one-time Golden Globe-winning Steve Carell. Over the course of our conversation at the London West Hollywood Hotel, the 56-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, including how improvisational comedy became an early passion, how he wound up at The Daily Show and why he decided to make himself the butt of his jokes while there, how his small part in Anchorman led to his movie star making part in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, which, in turn, saved the fledgling American adaptation of Ricky Gervais's hit British sitcom The Office, and what initially motivated and continues to motivate him to branch out beyond comedy and into darker material, including Foxcatcher, which resulted in that aforementioned Best Actor Oscar nomination, and continuing through Beautiful Boy, which could result in another. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by the Emmy-winning TV host, author, and first lady of the great state of New York, Sandra Lee, who is the subject and producer of a powerful new HBO documentary short, which is eligible for the Best Documentary Short Oscar, called RX Early Detection, A Cancer Journey with Sandra Lee, which debuted on HBO on Monday night and is now available on demand. Sandra, I feel like we are old pals at this point, even though I only met you yesterday because I had the opportunity to watch this very powerful movie right next to you and with all of your, you know, a lot of your friends and family because you're from 
L.A. until about eight years ago. What was that like for you last night, this L.A. unveiling of the movie? It was a very emotional premiere for me, and it continues to be so today. But we were lucky enough to be at Sundance and then at Tribeca, which is incredible. And my family had never seen it. I have done a couple premieres. But my family hadn't seen it. So my wonderful family was in the room and it made it extra special and super emotional for me. I was just grateful to be there. So can you paint a picture for people who haven't yet seen the film of what your life was like generally, but also very specifically on the day that in 2015 you found out you had breast cancer? Well, you know, I spend my life either shooting television shows that are how-to shows, whether it's food or home or crafts or gardening. And then I shoot my magazine, which is either food or home or crafts or gardening, mm-hmm. something. But that particular day, I was really lucky that People Magazine was shooting me for their world's most beautiful in May of 2015 was the pub date for that. And I was in my apartment dressed in all white with my two beautiful birds. I have cockatoos <laughs> that I love. They're my babies. You saw Phoenix. He's like a little boy. <laughs> and I had gone for my mammogram earlier that week. And it just was a routine, just routine yeah. mammogram. And they said they saw something that was different than the years before. So they wanted me to get it checked out. And I had a biopsy two days later. Mm-hmm. And then on Friday at five, the phone rang. I had just walked off the set of that photo shoot. And if you've ever been on anything that has to do with People magazine, it's full hair, full makeup, full, 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 full. Looks nothing like I look. I can look like me or share in the same two right. hours. I, I say that all the time. Right. Me or share same two hours. It is almost Halloween. Right. And they called and told me that I had breast cancer. And they, they tell you that over the phone or they tell you to come into the doctor's office? No, they told me on the phone. Said I didn't want you to wait for the weekend to wonder, which was a real gift. Mm-hmm. A shockingly a real gift because that weekend emperor of all maladies by the king of documentaries ken burns mm-hmm. was the king and queen of documentaries have come into my world but yes. the king of documentaries ken burns had emperor of all maladies playing in rotation on pbs so i had the pleasure of watching that in rotation all weekend long on pbs and if you've ever seen that is really kind of the history of what happened the people who came before us the m- women who suffered and who were science projects and happily so just to gain a week or two or a year of life when they were diagnosed but also the scientists and the doctors who have given up their lives so that we might have early detection but cancer breast cancer any kind of cancer it's not about that specific type of cancer and this is the most important thing i can say forget about breast cancer forget about colon cancer forget about cancer cancer is cancer Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what type you have and where it's at It is not there to be your friend. So watching that and understanding the history and thinking about all the people who have suffered in history with this awful disease and the people who suffer now Mm -hmm. was a really clear message for me of what I had to be. And that was as aggressive with cancer as cancer was going to be with me. Cancer is there to kill you. It's not there to be your friend. And pretty soon after that, you decided to document this was probably the worst period of your life as a film and i wonder you're again somebody that people generally see out in the if they know you it's because they see you as a very polished person on tv or in magazines or you know in your in controlled settings where you are very put together with what you're doing and i call it edited into perfection there you go (laughs) which is an unrealistic way to live but it depends on what your messaging is in that moment right 
And, you know, you've done it very well. It wasn't just that. That wasn't the only year you were one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful. I think it's been several years. You've also, as we said, been recognized with Emmys and other accolades and things like that. So that's the default setting. Now you're going to let cameras in to a very vulnerable situations where you don't know where it's going. What made you decide to do that? Information. And two reasons. First and foremost, you know, when you see me in, in my career, it is about tablescapes and meals and cocktails and beautiful homes and decor and matching outfits and all of those things. That is a part of life. But the other part of life is disease and loss and and living your day-to-day reality. And it isn't pretty every single day. But my job in the world and my purpose on this planet is to, I believe, is to give as much information as I can with what I'm given. And so I believe in what Robin Roberts believes in, and that is make your mess your message. So when I was raised on welfare and food stamps, and I know the grocery store better than anyone else on this planet, I believe, and all those brands, I made it into a cooking show. And I said, okay, people, if you're going to do it this way, here's how you do it to the best of your ability. And when God gave me a cancer diagnosis, I'm like, okay, It's not going to be beautiful cinematography. It's not going to be audio packs. There's not going to be any lighting and there's not going to be any makeup or hair. But this is what I could not find for myself. I couldn't find what the disease looked like. I couldn't find what it was going to look like when I decided to get a double mastectomy. I couldn't find any information that I felt I needed. So my sister and I, and she was my caregiver, we created it. It is a tool and a resource for people who either have been through it, are going through it, or who will go through it, and their caregivers and their family and friends to understand what it looks like and what your loved one is living through. And it's not pretty. No. It is not pretty. It is gutty, and it is gritty, and it is not pretty, but is the truth. So how logistically did the filmmaking side of this work? Did you just always have cameras around you or how did it work? There's one little tiny handheld camera. It was such an old camera that the tapes had to come. The only place that supplied them was Best Buy. And we had to special (laughs) order them. I mean, I have to say, a year and a half later, when I walked in with these tapes, and that was the only thing we had, and I walked into the queen of documentaries, Sheila Nevin's office, who was kind enough to take a meeting, and... Two hours later, all I had were these tapes, and she said, I don't think we're going to do this documentary. And I said, I don't even know if I have one, but what I know is I have a lot of tape. There's content in here that people will use. It will save lives. There's a purpose for this, and it will make families understand, and that is what this is about. And she said, okay, well, Andrew's in it, the governor of the state of New York, so we can't just put it in our normal system. (laughs) So what I'll do is I'll give you the equipment, you find the editor, you figure out what you want to do, and bring me something if you feel you even have it. Interesting. So I did, and I sat with her and I watched it for the first time together, and I sat there crying, Mm -hmm. and she started to cry, Mm -hmm. and she looked at me and she said, all right. Um, (laughs) Good impression. If you are really going to do this, And you're really comfortable showing what you just showed me. And you have to make that decision because this is not how people think, perceive you. Right. And I said, yeah, but that's not reality anyway. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a show. It's a different thing. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you're willing to do this, I will do it with you. But this is going to be something different than, and you can never go back. Right. And I don't want to go back. I want people to live. Right. I want people to know. And I want people to go out and get early detection. Well, I'm glad that she had that change of heart because she, you know, it was interesting. We did an episode with her maybe a year or two ago for the same podcast and to understand how many pitches she gets and things that don't 
come to fruition or even things that they want to do that just they can never quite bring together. And it's a major testament to the film itself, any film that gets made there. And it was probably one of the last ones that she was associated with during her tenure there. She's she's now moved on. But how did the Oscar-winning actress Kathy Bates become one of the executive producers of this film? Is that somebody that you knew before? I didn't. You know, cancer is a very interesting disease. It brings people together in a brotherhood and a sisterhood that that is just different. And until you are told that you have cancer, that your family member who you love more than anything has cancer, it's just you go, I don't want to hear about it anymore. And I was one of those people. I went to a fundraiser at a private home in New York, and she suffers from lymphedema which is a very painful disease, and she's going to have it for the rest of her life. Having already had ovarian, ovarian and breast and cancer breast. with a double mastectomy. I mean, it's unbelievable. People don't know this about her. They just see her in every American Horror Story thing, or they remember her from Misery. The This talk about misery, this is unbelievable. Right? Well, I'm going to say this yeah. only because it is in— in style magazine is they call them and it's called badass women yeah she should be the cover of it oh yeah because she lays it down every day in her advocacy for other people's health she lays it down every single day um on her show Mm -hmm. when she is in her performance and in life she's just one of those incredible women that is a force of nature so when i met her she explained to me what was going on with lymphedema and nobody told me when i had made the decision that i made what the outcome could be for me i didn't get lymphedema but she did and, and a lot of people do and if you count all the people mm-hmm. that have it it is something like seven different major diseases that we hear about every day combined. Can you explain for people who don't know what lymphedema is, what what it does to you? Well, it's in your lymphatic system and it causes problem with drainage so and it causes it. severe pain and swelling. And, yeah. You know, it, it happens to men if they have, you know, prostate which is related to breast and it comes out of their legs the the lymph nodes and for women it's in your arms and in your armpits and and that can happen as a result of the mastectomy or any yeah procedure on cancer it happens with a lot of cancer patients you know we all know there's like two things that are going to kill you it's either going to be cancer or heart disease Unless you get in a car accident. This is called RX Early Detection, A Cancer Journey with Sandra Lee for a reason. It's not a breast cancer journey with Sandra Lee. It is a cancer journey with Sandra Lee. RX means recipe for. So this is an RX is a recipe for early detection. It's the best way to save your life. Now I'm going to give you a statistic. Yeah, please. So if you're talking about breast, it's what, one in eight women. If you're talking about other cancers, it's one in six people. Whatever you're talking about, there's always an equation. And this is the most important thing we can say. So let's just say you and I are sitting here and you're going to go out and get in your car and you have a one in six chance of getting in an auto accident or a one in 10 chance or your child is going to leave the house and has a one in six or a one in 10 chance of getting in a car accident and may or may not be fatal. Mm -hmm. So you're going to put as many airbags in your baby's car as you can. All right. Early detection is that. And it's completely doable if you just go in and get your screenings. Whatever your screenings are, whatever your checkups are, stay on your body. You want to stay on the planet. We want you to stay. We want to be together. Well, yeah. We're going to be going soon enough. None of us are getting out of here alive. <laughs> no. Get your checkup. Well, and this, though, is where the documentary leads to advocacy for what you guys are, I think, planning to focus on moving forward is that 
you know, it's easy to say everybody should get a mammogram, but if insurance doesn't cover it, which for a lot of people it doesn't, I think I heard it's like $900. A lot of people can't, they can only go in and get it during working hours, which is not very helpful for working class people who, who don't have flexible hours. So what are some of the things I know already in the state of New York, Andrew's introduced some legislation and he said that just as a result of people in his own office knowing about what you went through, three young women went and got mammograms and all three came back with breast cancer, which is unbelievably frightening, but also you may well have already saved their lives before the before the film was even seen. But now it comes to legislation. So what has he been able to do? What else needs to happen around the country? Okay, so there's a couple things. First and foremost, let's talk about cancer on a whole. 90% of the time, there is no family history. Every doctor will tell you, and that's one of the things you're going to see in this documentary. You're going to see from the first time I write the words breast cancer on the document or cancer. Forget about breast. It's all cancer. From the first time you write cancer on a document all the way through my surgery, you're in the operating room. And I know we were together when we saw that scene. It was intense. It's all the way through the post-surgical infection, all the time in the hospital, all the intimate moments. So I implore everybody to just take 38 minutes out of their life and yeah. look at this short so you understand what it is. Yeah. The second thing, so 90%, no history in the family. It's the environment. Every doctor says they don't know if it's the air meets the water meets the food meets the hairspray meets the whatever, your antiperspirant, your shaving mm -hmm. cream, doesn't matter. It's a combination that's changing our cells. All cancer is, all cancer is, is just a cell gone bad, a cell gone bad and then gone rogue. That's what it is and then it hides itself. The epidemic, if you look at colon, men just came out yesterday, I think, men in their 20s and 30s, epidemic with men in their 20s and 30s, colon and rectal cancer. With women, breast, 30s and 40s, it's an epidemic. And we're not even advising people to get screened until they're 45. That is a death sentence. Yeah. You do not want that for your children and you shouldn't want it for yourself. So what we have in our state for breast specifically, but I'd love to see other cancers rolled up into this bill. And we just passed a bill for lymphedema mm -hmm. as well. So now that's, that's law. Yep. It's required that you tell people. But when it comes to the no excuses law, there's a lot of reasons why people don't go in and get their screenings. Two most important reasons, in my opinion, are time and money. Everything breaks down to time and money. Mm -hmm. First, let's talk about money. Copays and deductibles, if you have insurance, couldn't be as high as eight, nine hundred dollars for your copay or your deductible. In our state, we require the insurance companies to pay the copay. Your screening costs zero. That's now, funny. if you don't have money, there's zero anyway because you're going to mm -hmm. go to a free clinic. Mm -hmm. But if you have insurance, a lot of people are deciding: Do I pay for heat? Mm -hmm for my family for December, January, and February, or do I go get my screening, which I may or may not have something? Right. How do you make that decision to feed your family for two months so that's already or get a screening? in New York, that, that, that's fantastic. That's wow. passed, yeah. that's done. And the second thing is time. Nine to five, when the hospitals or clinics are open, the governors have control of the hospitals and clinics. So an hour at lunch is not enough time. We leave a majority of our hospitals and clinics, like 200 open, late at night and on the weekends to accommodate your schedule. So now there's no money issues, there's no time issues, there's no excuses for you not to get your screening. Right. Every governor in this union has to lay that law down. Obviously that kind of 
legislation still needs to be adopted in a lot of other states because the numbers still, I, I saw 113 people dying every day from breast cancer, which is just not acceptable. So I guess as a, you know, to wind this down, how are you feeling now? And does your motto from the film, which I'll leave it to you to share, does that still apply? Does that still get you through? There was some something that you you would repeat and people around you would repeat while you were going through this. Cured and beautiful? Yes. Ah. Everybody is a beautiful being, in my opinion. If you are life on earth, you're beautiful. So one of the things we always want to remember when cancer is in our world is who's ever got it, we just want you cured and beautiful. We just want you whole. The goal is to take this out to the other governors and to have it passed in their states. I'm going to the states that I'm from first. So I've already talked to Gavin. Please, sweet God. He Our, may... uh, California governor to be, hopefully. <laughs> Please, God. Yes. <laughs> and I've already I talked to Inslee in Washington State. Yep. I was raised here. I started my company here in my aunt and uncle's home in a small bedroom in San Fernando Valley. And I am a New Yorker, but a California girl. And so those are my first two states. Washington is next. And then I got to go to Wisconsin because that's where I was already taking care of New York. So that's (laughs) they're adding up. It's great. One by one. Well, as somebody who, like everybody, has a personal connection to this, I my grandmother died of cancer of the uterus, another very close and and loved relative is currently dealing with stomach cancer. It's horrible. I think that something like this is so important. And I really appreciate that you made the film and that you came to talk about it. So thank you, Sandra Lee. Thank you, Scott. And now for my interview with Steve Carell. Steve, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised? And what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Concord, Massachusetts. And my dad was a heat transfer engineer, and my mom was a psychiatric nurse. Okay. I read you are the youngest of four boys, and one of the articles I I came across suggested that one of the things, because there was a bit of an age difference, that one of the things you guys bonded over was the Three Stooges. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. And it's interesting because it seems like from the way this piece framed it, your comedic sensibility maybe might have been hinted at by the stooge that you gravitated towards? I liked Larry. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought Larry was the funniest because he was always sort of in the background and right. not, he never seemed to be trying too hard. And I, there was something I liked about that. Yeah. Obviously I thought Curly was hilarious <laughs> and Mo was kind of the glue, but Larry was a bit of a wild card. Right. I like that. <laughs> so growing up, was comedy a, a primary interest of yours? Were you a big consumer of it? Were you yourself the class clown or whatever? I was a consumer, but I wasn't the class clown. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I would buy comedy albums and I followed in my, my brother's footsteps too. They listened to a lot of National Lampoon and Firesign Theater and we'd all bond over those things too. We'd all sit and listen to kind of a bygone era. Mm-hmm. We'd sit and listen to comedy albums and starting with George Carlin and I, li- I had all of Steve Martin's mm-hmm. albums. And at the time I didn't realize it, but I was studying just by listening, especially Steve Martin. I'd listen to him over and over and over, and his comedy was so different than anyone else's because it was very absurdist. It was kind of anti-comedy, and I was taken with the fact that he would tell these jokes that didn't really have a punchline or a punchline that you would expect turned into something else, and I would try to figure out why I thought it was so funny. 
at the time as a kid. I'd yeah. just be listening yeah. to it in order to laugh again. But I think in retrospect, I realized I was really, I was really studying those things. But in terms of your own outlook for your own future, going through high school, going through college, it wasn't even a, a thought that this would be a career path for you, right? I understood you were doing plays and things in high school, in college. I yeah. guess you got involved with improv for the first time in college, but you were doing the responsible thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, my trajectory was law school. That's mm -hmm. really what I thought I'd end up doing. And the other stuff was just fun. Mm -hmm. It was extracurricular. You know, I was, I played a lot of sports and I was on student council and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and part of that was doing theater and plays, but comedy itself wasn't, didn't seem like, you know, where my head was at, at all. It's just, Improv specifically, though, it sounds like Denison, where you went to college, has the oldest improv comedy group there. Is that right? And that's the, that's the claim. Well, so, I mean, <laughs> improv obviously ended up being a, a big part of your life. That was the seed of the interest for you there? It was. A friend of mine, and we, we both decided to go down an audition, and I didn't really know anything about improv. I'd never really taken any improv classes, so the whole idea kind of scared me, but we thought that might be fun to do. And it was very low-key. It was a student-run improv group. And you could only audition when you were a freshman. They, oh, didn't, wow. they didn't audition anybody else. So you kind of became a lifer. Mm -hmm. once, once you got in as a freshman, then you would go through the entire, your college career as part of the group. And they still do that to this day. But no, it wasn't really on my radar before that. And so you did that all the way through, but you were also doing, and, and this may be news to some people you were also doing Shakespearean stuff you're doing other dramatic stuff right yeah yeah so it wasn't like you yourself had a clear idea at that point I'm a guy that's going to be a comedy person it sounds like it was very fluid I actually didn't think it would be comedy I didn't think that would be my way in because the thought of doing stand-up was terrifying really? to me oh yeah there's no way I could do that and I knew at the time I saw people like Steve Martin and George Carlin. I saw what they did, and there was I, I just didn't possess that that kind of ability, and and I didn't really think about comedy career wise. I really didn't think about acting career wise at that time. I just thought this is a fun thing to do, even in college. But I'm still going to go to law school. What changed that? <laughs> it was my application to law school, <laughs> which there was an essay question that asked, "Why do you want to be an attorney?" and I couldn't answer it. <laughs> I just had no idea. There was, there was no good answer. Right. So then, then I decided to take a detour and move to Chicago. But even then, I just thought acting. I wasn't, there was whatever I could get, whatever I could be hired to do, that was the idea. So how then, once you were in Chicago, did you, which I guess is, has always or for a long time been associated with, with comedy and improv, is that the reason there was just more of it there? That's how you ended up? in that more at Second City and also, you know, doing a variety of other things while there? Like, what led you down the comedy route once you were there? Well, Chicago as a city seemed much less intimidating than New York or L.A. for a young actor. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to work, and I figured it's a smaller pond, mm -hmm. so maybe the availability just to work. And I wasn't looking— I. I thought, well, you move to L.A. if you're ready, mm -hmm. or you move to New York if you're ready, or you want to be discovered. I wasn't looking to be discovered. I just wanted to get some experience under my belt. So I thought Chicago might be the best 
place to do that. And it wasn't a, it wasn't even about making any money at it, just to get up on stage and, and learn. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Second City was there was also a draw. I'd seen Second City when I was in college, and I thought, boy, that would be a fun job to have, touring around doing improv. The whole comedy thing happened just by virtue of the, the parts that I started to get. You know, you just, I auditioned for things, and I consistently was hired more for, I wasn't consistently hired, period. <laughs> but I the things that I did get hired to do were right. more comedic in nature. And it wasn't that. like even right when you got to Chicago, you were in Second City, right? There were a few oh. years. And then how do you, oh, yeah, there it's were an evolution, years. right? So yeah. you get, you become in the in the orbit and then a few more years before you're in the main troupe, right? Yeah. No, it takes a while. I took classes there and auditioned and was in a touring company. So it, yeah, there was a process involved there. And you also ultimately began teaching there as well, right? I did. That's where I met my wife. Yes. Can I ask you to share that story? Sure. I thought, wow, she's really cute and she's from Boston. She which was is, one of your students in that yeah, class. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, it sounds a lot creepier than no, it is. No, you know, no, she, no. she's four years younger than I am. Right. And, you know, we were, we were all adults and, and <laughs> I did nothing irresponsible in class. <laughs> it was funny because I remember teaching the class and I thought, wow, she's way out of my league. You know, there's no... There's no way that's going to happen. But I, I thought she was so funny and so smart. But she, when I, whenever I was teaching class, she'd look at me with this completely dour expression. And I thought, oh, and, and she hates me. <laughs> and later on, I found out that she liked me, but right. she was just trying not to let on right. anything. And she also worked across the street at the restaurant bar right across from Second City. So after shows, because I was teaching and I was working on the main stage, mm-hmm. I'd go over and I'd... I didn't really drink, so I'd go over and have a Diet Coke and right. sit at the sit at the bar, and she was the bartender. And the first time I asked her out, I mean, it took months for me to ask her out. And finally, I got up the guts to say something like, you know, if I ever asked anybody out, it would probably be a person just like you. It was like <laughs> just hamming and hawing and all around. And she she was exactly the same way. She said, you know, if I were to say yes to somebody, it would be a person like you who might be asking me. I mean, we just, we beat around the bush so much. And then finally, we kind of admitted that we liked each other and That's actually went out on a date. Some of the other folks who you were at Second City with have gone on to other exciting things, including one Stephen Colbert. Never I, heard of him. Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I, the, the sketch that I keep coming across and reading about that time in your lives was the one about a pair of waiters who are nauseated by food. Yeah. Was that sort of your biggest hit in terms of collaborations with him? That was my audition for the Dana Carvey show. Which I, would come afterwards. It was a... Ver- well, Waiters Who Were Nauseated by Food was on the Dana Carvey Oh, it show. wasn't a Second City thing. No, it wasn't oh, a Second okay. City piece. We both auditioned. We flew out to Los Angeles. This was after we both left Second City. So we're and talking we like were, mid-90s at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we were both auditioning. And it actually, when I auditioned, I did it as a solo thing. I thought, boy, I, you know, again, I don't do stand-up. And I had to like come up with some characters and do some bits. So I thought it might be funny to do a podiatrist who was nauseated by feet. <laughs> and so, so I, I used, you know, someone in the, in the audition and I'd examine their feet and then dry <laughs> heave and like not be able to contain myself. And then once we got on the show, 
I pitched that we do the these this waiter thing as a, a tandem bit with Stephen and I. So the way, it, if I have the chronology right, you your wife, I guess, what year did she become your wife? Maybe she was still your girlfriend. 95. 90, so that year, she winds up on SNL. Yeah. So you guys moved to New York. First of all, did you ever go out for SNL? A lot of Second City people seem to have auditioned. I never got it. I never got to audition. Never no. got to audition. Okay. So now the I guess the first big audition would have been this Dana Carvey show audition. Is it Robert Smigel that was the person that recruited you guys for that? Yeah, he was the executive producer. He was the uh, the one in charge. And Dana, you know, he yes. and Dana were executive producing it. That whole thing was a dream. I'd never been on a TV show before and. That group of people, you know, Robert Carlock and the list of writers was just an incredible Louis gathering. And Louis C.K. and Charlie, Charlie Kaufman was mm-hmm. a staff oh, yeah. writer. So it's just to name a few. And Stephen and I both got jobs on it. And it, and we knew almost instantly that it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't going to be on the air for very long. But we, you know, we knew we were on borrowed time, but it was really fun while we did it. So it lasted eight episodes on ABC. Dana Carvey has said, quote, it was probably the most bizarre variety show in the history of American television, close quote. So I guess maybe a little ahead of its time. But your comedic persona at that time was also very different than the one that people came to associate with you later on. You were more of a loud, yelling kind of guy at that point, right? Probably, yeah. <laughs> I think I did a lot of... I, I remember we did this one scene called The Stupid Pranksters, and they would pull pranks on people that really didn't affect the that person in any adverse way. <laughs> but we would think it's hilarious. Right. Like we'd... This old lady hires us to shovel her driveway, shovel the snow... And we shovel it, and then we run away without collecting our $5. <laughs> and she comes out with the money, and she doesn't understand. And we just, it cuts to us in a car laughing hysterically. <laughs> and it was mostly about that moment where we're just laughing right, hysterically. Right. So, yeah, it was pretty pretty broad and pretty loud stuff. Different. So when that show was canceled, it sounds like you and your wife moved to L.A., I guess it was partly to start a family, partly to see what you could now audition for more, you know, maybe more screen opportunities to audition for in L.A. And it does sound like there were a number of times in the years, you know, well before The Office where you were going out for something, it got a little bit off the ground, and then, you know, for one reason or another, it it died. And I wonder how soul-crushing that is when, you know, you're just waiting for sort of a, a break to happen. You know, it wasn't soul crushing because just the fact that I got that close or that something did get a little bit off the ground, I've always felt that that the success is incremental and it's just a rungs of a ladder. And as long as you're not falling off the ladder, you're right. you're doing fine. <laughs> right. If you're on the ladder, you're you're okay. And so I never felt you know, I was also always sad when something didn't work out, but you get to know pretty quickly that that's just the way it goes. And Things that stick or things that happen over long periods of time are few and far between. But just to get that chance, just to get in the door, just right. to even get an audition, you know, that to me at the time was really the success. It sounds like one thing that was going on for a number of years, starting probably around then, was something that introduced your voice to people, if not your face. How did you and Steven become the ambiguously gay duo? <laughs> that was that was Robert Smigel. Yeah. We started that on the Dana Carvey show. Right. So these segments, that we, a bunch of times on SNL, and just 
he was H, you were Gary. Is that yeah? That's right. So that was that. You had a presence on SNL. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, it started. We did a few for the Dana Carvey show, and then when Robert would also do things for SNL, and and he was a contributor, so he brought that, and Lauren, you know, put yeah. those on from time to time. <laughs> All right. So in 1998, John Stewart replaces Craig Kilborn at the Daily Show. Colbert goes over there, and how then? Do you wind up joining them? Colbert called me up. There were some openings. I think a couple of their correspondents had moved on. And he called me up and said, is it something you'd be interested in trying out for? Because I want to throw your name in the hat. I'd like to talk to the producers here about you. And I was living in L.A. at the time, and I wasn't working on anything. And I said, sure, you know, I'd give that a shot. And so they gave me, I think my first field piece was about like a conspiracy theorist who believed that people were being kidnapped at Disneyland and were becoming mind control slaves to a race of lizard people. <laughs> so that that was my first. And I'll be honest, I thought, I don't know if I'm cut out to do this. This is not. Because <laughs> it's such a weird hybrid of things yes. because you're pretending. At the time, The Daily Show wasn't really on the map. and mm-hmm. And people didn't know who these people were. Mm-hmm. You know, you could go out and you just hear The Daily Show and you, you would assume, oh, it's a news program mm-hmm. on some cable network and didn't necessarily know that it was a comedy show. So you could kind of get away with pulling the wool over right. people's eyes. But even that part of it was a little strange to me because I don't, I didn't want to do anything that was mean-spirited. Right. And I very quickly had to figure out how to, make my character the butt of the joke as opposed to the people that I was interviewing. Well, it sounds like there was even maybe a specific turning point where that became clear to you that you wanted to shift that dynamic. Was there something with the Klingon conference? You know, that wasn't... No, I loved the Klingon conference because (laughs) it's, again, it was an easy thing to do to kind of make myself the buffoon in these pieces because... That's a perfect example of a group of people, and they're they're quirky, and it's a, essentially a group of people who love to get together and speak Klingon. <laughs> there is an actual language, and they all learn it, and they dress up as Klingons, and they get together <laughs> once a year or, or, or so, right. and, <laughs> and they speak Klingon to each other. And I kind of loved it because they turned out to be a really wonderful group of of people and and sweet and kind and generous to one another and why why make fun they're not hurting anyone mm-hmm. and i just thought a really sweet heartfelt thing and so it's easy as sort of the buffoon investigative reporter to come into this world and and you make yourself the ass and it's certainly not them and you essentially created a bit of a backstory for your own guy that you would be on the show this is a guy that had failed at or had some for whatever reason fallen from grace (laughs) right yeah that was sort of in the back of my mind like that he he was maybe for a brief moment uh, on the national scene and that had been relegated to this terrible crappy cable news program and you know i had all this backstory in my mind about this tortured correspondent (laughs) having a chip on his shoulder so after i guess five six years what was it that motivated you in 2004 to leave the show move back to the west coast 
where you then promptly wound up playing a few other fake newsmen in, in your first movies. But That's right. what, what was the impetus? The impetus was comfort, really. I started to feel too comfortable in the job. It was a great, great job. And my wife, Nancy, had become a correspondent and we'd you know, just had a baby and it was a family. Loved working with John and the writing was excellent, but at the same time, I, I just felt that maybe it would be best to move on. Because I just, I tend to like to shake things up a little bit and not become complacent and see what else is out there and just make a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. And so you wind up back out there and it seems like your first major step into the world of film was as this character, Evan Baxter, who you would play multiple times, the first time in Bruce Almighty, 2003, you were, fun fact, still credited as Stephen Carell in the That's credits. Right. And to remind people, you basically stole the movie in the scene where Jim Carrey as this godlike character starts controlling your behavior in that scene on the air. But it was my understanding that when you showed up at the premiere, you didn't think you were still in the movie. I didn't know either way. I, you know, you, you, I was just a, a small supporting character, so you never know. And I, <laughs> I tend to be a, what, a glass half empty sort of person. <laughs> I, I tend, you know, I think to what you were saying before about the anticipation of things that fail or, or it doesn't happen. I think if you guard against that, and maybe that's a terrible way to go through life, but if you, if you sort of limit your own expectations, it's helpful. And I did that with that movie. Right. And I thought, maybe I'm not in this. I'll go. It'll be fun. You, maybe you'll see me. Right. I'll be in the background <laughs> of one scene. And then you saw that scene. What did you think? It was weird to see yourself. You know, right. having never seen yourself on a movie screen, it's a little disconcerting. <laughs> for starters. A little crazy. Like, oh, my. Right. Wow. That's what I look like, huh? That's 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 a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> Well, that got the, the ball rolling, but I've got to ask you about another one that I think early on sort of expanded on what was initially almost like a cult following, and that is, of course, Brick, the simple-minded weatherman in Anchorman. This one you've said was the, the real game changer in that it introduced you to McKay and Farrell, right? I mean, why was that so important? Even, even if the part was, you know, not a leading one yet or whatever. Why is that the one that you say it really everything else stems from? Well, just getting the chance to be a part of that movie, it was pure joy. Those guys, I can't imagine having more fun than the four of us had filming that. And I'd known Adam from Second City. Right, right, right. Not well. You know, we were in different casts, and but we, we knew each other from back then. And then he was a writer on SNL when my wife was there. So we'd, you know, we'd been sort of in, in the same circle for a while, but I'd really never worked with him before. And except for one time I heard he, there was a little bit of a stunt thing where you came oh, out of the yeah. audience. <laughs> oh yeah. My wife, well, he and my wife were in a touring company at second right. city and they were doing a show up in Madison, Wisconsin. And I went to visit Nancy while she was there. And Adam had me, Adam planted me in the audience and said, would you, <laughs> we're going to have you come up on stage and do an improv right. and, and people in the audience will just think that you're like a member of the audience, mm -hmm. but then we're going to be really, really mean to you. <laughs> and, and, and so I pretended like I was just a guy from the audience and then I was trying to improvise with them and they, 
they just dragged me over the coals and you could feel the audience turning on the cast. They were so they were so mad that the cast was being so mean to this this innocent member of the audience. And even when we said, We're just kidding, I'm in a cast down in Chicago, they, they were gone. They were gone. <laughs> Couldn't get him back. But Brick was that character had almost no lines when we started. And every day Adam would say at the end of the scene, just say something. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> and, and to have that, you know, that freedom to just right. play around and kind of say whatever. And I remember Paul Rudd and I were just sitting around between takes and we we started singing Afternoon Delight because we'd heard it on the radio mm -hmm. recently. And we were picking out these harmonies and, and the two of us were... And we weren't thinking of putting it into the movie. And Adam walked by and heard us and said, can you guys learn four-part harmony of that by tomorrow? <laughs> and we said, yes. <laughs> and so we put it in the movie. And so we, it was that and, we and Lamp and just, all the others. <laughs> see, that's what it was. It was such just a mixed bag of stuff. Yeah. And Adam, that's the way he loves to work. It's, it's, it's haphazard. It's all over the place. But there's a, definitely a method to the madness. He, he is a genius for casting a, a wide net and then boiling it down to the best components of what it is. So Judd Apatow was around there because, what, he was a producer of that? He was that. a producer on that. And he, on the set, took a particular interest in finding out what if you had any ideas for future projects, or what was that? Yes, he he said, at, towards the end of shooting Anchorman, he asked if I had any ideas for anything. And I met with him once we finished shooting, and I spent about an hour pitching him this idea that I'd been thinking about. And we went back and forth, and it was a decent idea, and he liked it, and we were going to noodle with it a little bit more. And as I was getting up, I said, oh, there's this other thing. And and I pitched him 40-year-old virgin. <laughs> and, and he sat back down and said, now that I could sell tomorrow. Right. And he pretty much did. <laughs> like that next week, he was talking to a Universal executive and gave them a really quick, soft pitch on it. And they said, yes, we'll buy that. With you as the lead. Yeah. And and, and he is director. That's, and that's a big vote of confidence because you had not yet, obviously, from what we've talked about, played a lead, right? No, no. I think in both of us because we were both fairly unproven. Right. And so they just liked the idea and they, they went with it. In the meantime, before I think anything to do with 40-Year-Old Virgin was really going... You go out for an NBC pilot not called The Office, right? And you get that show. Meanwhile, they're interested in you for The Office, but there's now this, this juggling that has to happen. What was going on as far as you knew at that time? I didn't know anything. Okay. I just knew I was on this one show, but then it became apparent pretty early on that it, it wasn't panning out. Mm -hmm. And then I... Then I started hearing there's this other show that they might be interested in you for. It was it was NBC as well. Mm -hmm. I didn't really I'm so oblivious, and I continue to be really. <laughs> so I I just luckily was able to audition for The Office. And so this just to I guess set the scene. You're gonna go in for an audition for a show. No laugh track. No background music. Documentary style. And following in the footsteps of a very acclaimed. British version with Ricky Gervais. Were you at all intimidated by any of those things, or did you not really even know much about the, the Gervais version at that time? I didn't know much, apart from what Paul Rudd had told me. And I remember I told Paul 
that I was going to audition for this. And he said, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. You can't. It's going to fail. There's no way. <laughs> there's no way an American version will even live up a little bit to the British version. So that made me a little scared. <laughs> but the good thing is, because of that comment, I decided not to watch any of the British version because I thought, OK, my best shot at this is if I don't know anything about that show and just create what I see as this guy as opposed to doing an impression of Ricky. Because, you know, subsequently I've I've seen a lot of what he did on that show and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I there's no way I could have replicated that. So I that was I thought the best course of action yeah. is to just try to generate something that at least felt original to me. You get this part, the American version of David is now Michael Scott, office manager at Dunder Mifflin's Scranton Branch. 149 episodes, it ended up lasting for for you, but after the first season, a lot of things changed. The people, I think, forget that in the first season, he was maybe a bit of a meaner guy, I guess you could say, and also you were still not particularly well-known until 40-Year-Old Virgin came out, and that was in between, I think, the two seasons, so how close did it come to not going beyond that first season? I think it was pretty close. I, I think it was uh, Kevin Riley at NBC, as I remember it and as I know it, he's the one who saved it. I think he was, he was our champion at NBC, and he put his career on the line to a certain extent by saying, I, I have faith in this. This one's on me. I think this could turn into something great. It just needs a little time. So we're always very thankful to him for keeping us on the air. And you originally, I guess the first contract was for three years, then you extended through seven. What's it like to play one character over that long a period of time and then have to say goodbye to that character? I, I know there, there are many things in between which I'll ask you about, but I mean, just the idea of throughout that period playing one, one coming back to this character, how did it was a different experience than anything up to that point, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well... I think you have to go into a show like that assuming that it's going to go for a while. Maybe that's not good advice to give to people, but I I thought acting-wise, even that first season, which was different than some of the subsequent seasons, even then, I think we all had it in our minds that it wasn't just the first season of us doing the show. It's the first season of this documentary. So that was always what we were thinking about. And I thought in terms of Michael Scott, well, this is who he, this is who he is the first season. He's a little more abrasive. He's trying a little too hard because he's never been on TV before. He's never experienced a camera crew. And I felt if this is going to go for a while, he has to start at one point and has to evolve over the years because if this does go to a second and third year, he's going to become more confident in his camera savvy mm-hmm. and you're going to get a, a more in-depth picture of how he actually interacts. He's going to relax. He'll probably reveal more about himself personally further down the line when he starts to forget about the cameras. So. There was, in at least in my mind, a method to the madness in terms of the arc. I really saw it as an arc. And around season four, I thought season seven is going to be it for me, regardless of, of where the show mm-hmm. is. Because I, I saw the arc of where I thought Michael should end up. Because at a certain point, I figure 
he would grow enough as a human being that he didn't need the camera crew and he didn't need the celebrity and that he had a relate. He really had what he wanted out of life, which was a family and, and love. So I saw that as sort of the perfect execution of that beginning to end and all the foibles and, and weirdness that transpire in the middle. And in the meantime, I guess, as we as we were talking about earlier, the 40-year-old version's coming together where you're going to now carry a movie for the first time. You and Apatow co-wrote it. Universal is making it. So it gets going. But even as, you know, as dailies are starting to come in, they were not sold on you still, right? No. <laughs> no. They shut us down after week one. For what reason? Because I looked like a serial killer. <laughs> because, because they watched dailies and... And all we were shooting that first week was was me wearing this weird bike helmet in a, in a little windbreaker on this really weird looking bike right. riding around the city. That was, that was like all day one daily. Right. Like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's a little a weird. Mistake? And then day two was like me walking down the street and, <laughs> and looking weirdly at women and being <laughs> weirded out by, by, you know, sexually explicit ads on the side of right. buses. And they couldn't, they, they couldn't put in any, any context on it. I mean, they, it, it just looked weird. <laughs> and, and they called us in. I remember Judd, we were, you're shooting a scene and Judd walked in and said, we have to shut down. <laughs> like, what? Universal would like to talk to us. So we just done. It, everybody went home. We went to Universal. And we kind of had to talk our way back into shooting. This was on a Friday. How did you digest the complaint? We didn't fight it. We yeah. just said, okay, you know, we'll, we will do the best that we can. They put... You know, it, I think they just needed to see more of what right. it was going to be and start to see the heart of it and right. start to see the the relationships. And I think it was just a, you know, again, we were completely unproven. They didn't know right. what we were up to. Or even when the, we went into test screenings, I don't think they held much hope for this movie. <laughs> Until it started to test screen, and then people started responding positively to it. But to their credit, it was a leap of faith. Like, why would you make this movie? I remember at the time I had made it, and I went back for a high school reunion, and people asked what I was up to. And I said, I just did this movie (laughs) called 40-Year-Old Virgin. And I could see their eyes rolling back in their heads. Oh, that sounds great right and i i could feel their pity like oh this guy what a terrible career he's got ahead of him (laughs) just didn't sound good when you say 40 year old version to somebody today i think for most people the first thing that comes to mind is the chest waxing scene it's just instantly associated i wanted to just quickly ask you the execution of that i heard one take five cameras real chest hair real oh yeah (laughs) yeah that i i remember judd and i were I was driving to a writing session and we were talking about, we wanted to do this makeover sequence, sort of a pretty woman makeover yes. sequence and like how he's <laughs> going to glow up. And I thought, well, he should get, he should think he's, you know, I think a chest waxing might be fun, but I pitched to Judd that we really do it and we do it real time because in my mind, it wasn't so much, I didn't think my character was the funny aspect of that scene. My idea was that the three guys watching, they're 
honest reaction <laughs> to the fact that I was having my hair pulled out. Right. That to me would be really funny because there's no way you can act that. There's no. no you can't. You can't create that. Romney at one point while we were shooting it had. You'll see he leaves because he can't take it. He, it's just. It's so disturbing to him. He had to. And walk out of the scene. And your little exclamations that you're, or, you know, things that you're yelling are totally just in the moment improv or. Yeah, yeah. there were some, yeah, we didn't, we really didn't know where it was going <laughs> or what it was going to be. And Judd, I mean, he framed it so beautifully and he was smart in the way that he had all of those cameras. Cause obviously we couldn't do more than one take cause it, it's not going to grow no, back for a no, while. No. But if you, if you look closely, you can see blood yeah. coming to the surface. Yeah. It was and the woman who did it... I was going to say, they're hilarious, too. Just she, look at them. Well, she said on her resume that she knew how to do <laughs> waxing. But I... Not so sure. That's like, also, <laughs> I, I can drive a standard and right. I own my own tux. Right. <laughs> so a movie opens $177 million worldwide. Suddenly you're a movie star. Can you talk about the pros and cons of that just coming out of that weekend? On the one hand, I imagine you know, you're now poised to have a lot more money, a lot more opportunities. On the other hand, you can't walk down the street the same way that you could before, I would think. Maybe it wasn't that quick. But what was your experience with that post-40-year-old virgin moment? I can still walk down the street pretty easily. Really? Yeah. There's not, I don't cause much of a hubbub. So that really didn't change. Okay, good. It was sort of incremental. I I didn't feel any different. There, There wasn't, I'll tell you the biggest difference. After that, I went in, they called me in because they were doing this re- redo of Get Smart. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm in the running for, to play Maxwell Smart. That's pretty cool. So I went for a meeting over at, or what I thought was an audition, yeah. over at Warner Brothers. And I had my little briefcase with my picture and resume. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sent any sides. So I was thinking, are they going to have us improvise? Are they going to just show sides once we get there? And I, I didn't know. So I was ushered into this conference room and it was like the mucky mucks mm-hmm. of Warner Brothers sitting around this big square conference room table. And I thought, this is a weird place to audition. <laughs> and it's, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around what this was. And the meeting started and he said, thanks for coming in. We'd, we'd love you to play Maxwell Smart. And they start talking about the movie. And I... And I literally had my hand on my picture and resume and I'm trying to be cool putting it back into my briefcase because I didn't, I thought I was, that's never been offered outright. Never been offered, just offered a part. And so that was the biggest change to me was that, wow, I actually didn't have to read for this. So, and did it also seem now that you had the, I guess you would say financial Security, not if you maybe you already felt that way, but certainly to go and do little indies like a little Miss Sunshine, which was just a year after Four Year Old Virgin, to go and do something like that where you had to like the material because otherwise, apart from you, it's directorial debut of of Dayton and Ferris. It wasn't on anyone's radar that much, so I think your involvement probably helped to make that one happen. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I thought that you know there were so many great actors in that. I, I felt like I was the the lucky piece of that puzzle. I that was one of those um happy accidents. You know, be, being able to 
be invited into that. Because Arkin was a hero of yours. Arkin is, I, Alan Arkin is my idol. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never got to meet Peter Sellers. Mm-hmm. And Alan Arkin is, I, I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to work with him a few times. Yeah. And he's, I admire him so much. So that was a big thing for me, being able to work with him. And we all read this script. I mean, we've talked about it later, the members of the cast, and it just seemed right. There wasn't anything that any of us would want to change. And I met Valerie and Jonathan, the directors, and they were thoughtful and smart. And it just seemed like such a great, great thing. And it felt it felt right while we were doing it and kind of effortless. Wound up with Best Picture Oscar nomination, so I think people agreed. Another one that people really responded to you very strongly in that same year was Dan in Real Life with Peter Hedges. So then it seems like for the years after, ever since, it's been a back and forth between these intimate indies and some of the larger scale comedies or animated movies with the Despicable Me movies. Do you have any sort of equation in your own mind about, I'm going to do a small one and a big one every year, I'm going to go back and forth, or is it just truly you judge at by what comes at you? It's what comes at me. It's yeah. sort of luck of the draw, unless there are people working behind the scenes that are laying it all out in a beautiful way that I'm not aware of. But I, you know, like Little Miss Sunshine or Dan in Real Life, there there are things that just came about that piqued my interest. And I, and I, you know, I hate to be too aw shucks about the whole thing, but every time I, you know, I'm offered something like that like that I think wow how how did I get so lucky how did this how did this work out to my favor because you know when when Bennett Miller called up about Foxcatcher that blew my mind you know Bennett Miller no like I'm how could I possibly be on that guy's radar well we're definitely going to come to that one specifically but I first have to ask you because it sounds like maybe the moment where that you know let's see what comes at me slightly shifted was you started your own production company, which mm-hmm. is something, you know, sometimes happens. And in your case, it's interesting because that's, I guess, the first time where the ball is really truly in your court to decide what you want to be a part of, what you want to try to develop. It sounds like one of the first, maybe the first thing that came out of this production company was Crazy Stupid Love. Why yeah. was that? I mean, obviously you were validated by the critical and commercial response, but why was that what you wanted to do? I thought it was well-written. Mm-hmm. I just liked it. I thought it was funny. I could see it. And it was exciting to be in a position to find the directors and find the cast and shape it the way I envisioned it could proceed. And, you know, getting Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, Julianne Moore, like all of these fantastic actors that, again, like, wow, you want to be in this? Right. Right. (laughs) It's, It's crazy. Marissa Tomei. And they've all become friends of mine. And I remember one one day we were shooting and we were sort of running out of time for one scene. Because, and then it was raining and then we had to move on. And I realized that, oh, I'm the guy who has to make the decision. <laughs> like I was, you know, I'm happily acting and right. the directors are directing. And the directors came and said, well, what do we do? We haven't finished. And I said, okay, we're moving on. And it was such a strange 
feeling to have that sort of authority to <laughs> say, okay, I guess we're going to make do with whatever that was and try to get to the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's an added responsibility for sure. But also it was exciting, you know, to to help usher it and, and, and push it in the way that I, I thought best. When it's not a movie that you are behind, how much does the identities of your potential co-stars factor into whether or not to do something? I mean, I would imagine if ever that was a consideration, it might have been with Hope Springs where you're with Tommy Lee Jones and Meryl Streep. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's, you just do that. Right. You get a call and you, yes, yes. yes. I don't even have to, to read it. Right. And you also, people like that, you also think, well, if they're doing it, then there's a reason to do it. Right. You know, save some you, of the some of like, the. I might not right. have taste, but they definitely do. <laughs> so, so it's nice to follow. You know, and same with directors. Like, if a director has a specific idea and you've liked that person's work, or you've just liked a writer in general, you try to partner with people like that that you respect, and and you respect the opinions of of good actors who. You know, you can sense whether something has a potential or not. Well, in, uh, a year after, uh, so Crazy Stupid Love is 2011, Hope Springs is 2012. 2013, you did a movie where it was, you're playing a character unlike any other character I think we'd ever seen you play before in The Way, Way Back, basically a cocky asshole, for, for lack of a better word. And it was interesting. I wonder, you know, did you feel that that was... A bit of a risk. I know you'd initially turn it down. I don't know if that was why, but I, on the other hand, you've got Faxon and Rash who are, who are improv guys like you, I think out of the groundlings instead of second city, but you know, essentially from a sensibility point of view, it would make sense to want to work with those guys. But on the other hand, you've cultivated at that point, a bit of a screen persona, and now you're going to sign up to blow it up. Yeah. Was that scary? (laughs) No, I wasn't worried about that. I'm you know, screen persona, I think people ultimately can separate. I trust that they can, that that's exactly what it is. It's just different personas. And if people get locked into one, that's on them, mm-hmm. you know. And I I only turned it down at first because it was shooting during the summertime. And summer is generally a time I just spend with family and, and carve out that, you know, with my kids and my wife. And the only reason it worked was because they ended up shooting where we were spending the summer. And so I could kind of, that night, that's it nice. was great. I yeah. mean, it worked. It, it was like we had a beach holiday right. and, <laughs> and I also shot a movie. Right. So it was, but no, I wasn't, I wasn't intimidated. I embraced the idea of playing somebody who was less than nice and generous human mm-hmm. but you know i always tend to think of somebody who's just damaged in some way mm-hmm. there there's a reason why he is a asshole yeah. and and without putting too fine a point on it i thought well there's a human being there to be played and i like the way it was written i thought I, I thought it was an i thought that was an underappreciated movie i yeah. thought sam rockwell was great in that movie and you He's were back great. with tony collette again from little miss yeah. sunshine and yeah, yeah. And it wasn't Allison Janney also. Fantastic. Great. Again, just this really great cast of people. Yeah. So in a way, it was a stepping stone towards the the next one a year later, which is what you started to bring up a moment ago about Bennett Miller and Foxcatcher, where a lot of people were taken aback, sort of caught off guard to see you playing a out-and-out dramatic 
part? Was it a matter of having a hunger to do drama and actively, you know, being in, on the hunt for something that fit that description? Or was it just, again, sort of totally out of the blue and then you just couldn't avoid it in this case? Totally out of the blue. Yeah. Nothing that I had earmarked, nothing that I was looking for. Again, just a, a strange aligning of the planets. I, I didn't, yeah, that one I didn't see coming. And I did, I certainly didn't see, I'd met Bennett Miller before, mm-hmm. but I never envisioned working with him. Because he's associated with movies that were different than the kind that you had been making? Yeah. And I don't know if you you know him very well, but I'd, in meeting him, I thought, he scares the crap out of me. He's a very intimidating guy. Yeah. To first, you know, when you, you meet him, yeah, he's very intelligent and he's he's an artist, you know. And and I was intimidated, and I I was even surprised when we first got together to have lunch and talk about the part. I it felt a bit like a prank. Like why? How? How in a million years do you see me in this role? Did he and, tell you? He did. And I think part of the impetus for the call was that it sort of leaned into what my what my public persona is or was at that time. And that it was essentially here's this guy and he's he's quirky, but you never expect him to do what he ends up doing. And I think that was a part of the component was that. It was unexpected. It was not like you, you think you have a handle on who this character is, and then they they turn out to be something different or beyond what you thought. But yeah, it did come out of the blue. It wasn't it was not, wasn't anything that I was looking to do necessarily. That was a part that required or, or that you gave intense preparation. I've read about all the literary research, the visual research, the contacting people who knew and dealt with the real DuPont. Then you have all the prosthetics. What did you make of working in that way for, I guess, the first time, probably the first time playing a real person? Yeah, I think it was. Aside from Brick. (laughs) (laughs) Who can be found at (laughs) which station? It's it's actually, I do, I go, I've gone to some local stations and they always say, that guy's our Brick. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) <laughs> See that one over there? That's our That's him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was different. I'd never done any sort of prosthetic makeup before, and that, just getting used to what that process entails, there's a responsibility to playing a real person. And, you know, you try not to comment on whoever you're playing. It's not, I didn't go in thinking, oh, this is a horrible person. You just start with, gosh, it sounds so actory but I tried to start with the fact that here's a real guy who has has had these real experiences and the more I learned about him and his childhood and you extrapolate and you try to you do your best to cobble together a, a sense of who that person might have been but that's really it's really just a best guess and was it your sense during the making of the movie that things were going pretty well from your point of view or did you have to hear that from others to know that it had worked. I had no, we, none of us had any clue. I remember at the end of a long day, Mark Ruffalo and I got on an elevator together and we're quiet. And I turned to him and said, this is either like going to work or 
it's going to end all of our careers. <laughs> and he said, he was thinking exactly the same thing. You know, we're doing these characters that are unlike anything any of us have done. And, you know, he's walking around like Dave Schultz and, and, and I've got this other whole demeanor happening and, and we were completely committed to it. But at the same time, I, we had no idea whether it was going to feel truthful and we just didn't know. So that being the case, can you explain how it felt to have this movie, to be there for the movie's premiere at Cannes, to see the reviews that came in, and then especially on the morning of Oscar nominations? Oh, I will never forget the morning of Oscar nominations. Because, <laughs> you know, I didn't really think that was going to happen, but I will admit, I woke up and I watched. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wanted to see what was going to happen. So I got out of bed and I snuck downstairs. I didn't want to wake up my wife. So I went down to our family room and I was watching TV and my name flashed up and I like stood up and I started to run upstairs to wake up Nancy. And she, she had been watching in our bedroom. So she was on her way downstairs. So we met and we didn't want to wake up the kids. Right. So we're standing on our stairs, just like hugging, jumping up and down, but silently. I will never forget it. It was a really exciting moment. And do you feel that it was in any way a turning point in terms of the career, in terms of now people Maybe the performance itself would have done this, but just even if there wasn't the Oscar nomination, but the idea that now people could imagine you in roles like the one we're coming to here, the most recent, do you think it was a shifter of, of the way people saw you? Oh, yes. Now I demand respect. <laughs> it's all it's all changed. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know mm -hmm. if it I didn't necessarily feel it. It's not like you started, you know, refusing to work with your old friends. The next movie was Adam McKay with <laughs> right. the big short yeah. back at the Oscars. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was a really fun moment, but you can't put too much stock in in, in the kind of impact it might have on right. a career. But it is interesting in terms of then playing people who really existed for the big short. It's a different name, your character, Mark Baum, than the guy who inspired him. But that's essentially modeled after another person who lived, right? Yeah, Steve Eisman. Then you did Battle of the Sexes, obviously Bobby Riggs, who I think you'd said you remembered seeing that the Battle of the oh, Sexes as a kid? Yeah, I remember it vividly. Wow. Last Flag Flying, was that modeled after an actual person? It wasn't, no. no. Okay. It could have been. I'm sure there are plenty of, plenty of guys that... I thought a lot about my dad playing really? that part. Yeah, he's a World War II vet, and wow. he there's something about his demeanor that I felt lent itself to that. He's, he's a very humble guy, but with a, a real internal fortitude, and who went through some incredibly tough moments fighting through France and Germany, and which I didn't find out about until I was an adult. But, you know, here's this really kind, open-hearted soul, but to know about the the terrible things that he experienced eye-opening yeah that was i think that's an underappreciated performance of yours i i know oh, that uh, people should go and check it out but that brings us to the most recent and not only real person that you've played but i guess most recent released movie just this past friday or this coming friday mm -hmm. with beautiful boy how did you first hear about it and were you immediately on board? It's got to be a dark headspace to commit yourself to for a little while. 
I was immediately on board after I read the script. I thought it was well written. I thought it was relevant and timely and important. It's an important message, I think. It, it's an important subject matter. You know, you never want to do a movie because of that. You don't want a movie to lecture people or to be just purely informative. Um, I felt beyond the fact that it is a topic that that exists in our world that, you know, that people deal with all the time, that the movie itself, that the themes were um, love and family and hope, and those all appeal to me. And I relate. You know, I have two kids and basically the same age as the character in the film. And it's a terrifying prospect to think about your kids going through something like that. So I related to it on in a real personal level as well. In terms of prep, you had not only the two memoirs that the father and son had written that you could consult on top of the script, but also the two authors and people who lived through this themselves. Was there anything particularly useful for your performance that you were able to get from from talking to them and actually, you know, hearing firsthand about their experience? Just the kindness that they imbue. They're they're both you know, it's interesting. It, it seems like such a dark movie, and obviously it is, and, and dark subject matter to be sure. But the two of them are such light people. They are they have such generosity of spirit and are are fun and funny. So I, I think that's what Timothy and I gleaned from getting to know both of them is that they came out the other side of this ordeal with their spirit intact and so generous. The fact that they're even, they even allowed this movie to be made, that they trusted all of these strangers to interpret it to a film, I take my hat off to them. I, that's, there's a leap of faith there and a courage that I really admire. There are a lot of very moving moments in the film, in their story, whether it's when your character first goes to the addiction specialist who kind of makes him aware of how unlikely it is that they, that the son will come out of this, to you having to practice some tough love on the son, turning him away essentially, to the one in the diner, I guess it is, where, where you're realizing the extent of what he's in. I just wonder, was there one that stands apart from the others for you that was maybe the most challenging to, to act? I think the most challenging would be a scene in which he has to, the character has to turn his back on his son because it goes against every fiber of your being as a parent. The, the idea of, I mean, it's hard enough to say no to your kids, but, <laughs> but to say, I'm not helping you anymore because it's not helping. It's almost beyond my comprehension as a dad. And it's real. It's what he did. It's what it's what this family went through. So I think that moment was probably the most daunting and the one the one that I feared. Yeah. Just a few weeks ago, I was sitting an aisle over from, it was you and Timothy and then the real chefs and a whole bunch of people that worked on this movie at the Toronto International Film Festival. There was the world premiere at their biggest venue, which is the Roy Thompson Hall. People can be very tough on movies there, or they can let you know that they love it. And I've, I've been going there a long time and I've seen both and it can be awkward if it doesn't go your way and it can be amazing if it does. 
what was that like for you when, first of all, there were people responded to the movie, then they put the lights on you guys, and it was clear to, suddenly to the audience that not only are you and Timothy there, but also these folks whose story we've just seen. I imagine that was a, a special one for you guys. It was. I can't even imagine how how it felt for David and Nick to have lived this, to have written books about it, and then to have a film made about your experience is... I know David had to watch the film again that afternoon before the premiere because he'd never seen it with a group of people before. He'd, he'd watched it by himself months ago, and he had to see it again and kind of reflect on it once more before he saw it with an audience because I, you know... He's a very open guy, and he told me he just didn't know how he would respond. I don't know if you remember, he came, he and Nick came out on stage, and the audience just embraced the fact that they were there, and he had to kind of turn, and I was standing next to him, and I just saw in his face, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's revealing too much, because it was just a really tender moment, but I, I saw him taking it in and processing it. And I could tell it just meant so much to him that they were there and that all of these people had shown up to support it. And, and that, that, you know, all the rest of the people on the stage had done their best to honor their story as well. It was just a, a really moving moment. And it felt, it was very pure. It wasn't, it wasn't one of these contrived, like, and and go oh, and this and the audience is going to love this part when we trot <laughs> them out. out. <laughs> no, it was really organic and just a lovely moment yeah. for the you know for all of us really. Looking towards the future, I know that we will soon see you in another Adam McKay movie. Vice, yeah. yep. you are playing just to you know let people know Donald Rumsfeld opposite Christian Bale's Dick Cheney. This is three years after the Big Short where where you all were together. It's even funny for you to say, and, you know, Christian Bale is shady. I'm like, how, <laughs> again, like, where did, we, how did we get from right. A to B here? Like, you know, we're talking about, I, I work with Ben Miller and I do right. this thing. And then I'm, you know, in this movie with Christian Bale and Amy Adams and Sam Rockwell. Like, it's like very heady stuff. I, I, I still, even hearing it, mm -hmm. I, I kind of pinch myself. There's also coming up around the same time as Vice, Welcome to Marwin. Which is yeah. adapted from a documentary? Yes. It was a documentary about a man named Mark Hogenkamp who suffered a traumatic brain injury. And as therapy, he created this backyard town, this scale model town inhabited by essentially G.I. Joes and Barbie dolls. <laughs> and it was his art installation. He would take pictures and create this world for himself as a way of coping. Mm with his uh, post-traumatic stress. And so this, so that's the documentary and that's the real life person. And Robert Zemeckis has taken this and expanded this world to include the fantasy world and the real world. And it travels between the two. It's, it's that's crazy. Exciting. I mean, I guess he, he can certainly do the blend of VFX and, and real life as yeah. well as anybody. Yeah, so. he's the guy. Awesome. Last question is, Anything you can tell us about the, your your thoughts about what people are constantly badgering you about as far as will there ever be, you know, now that everybody's rebooting everything, will there ever be a office reboot? And just generally the outlook at the moment. I don't know. Future, I'm, I'm always just 
looking for the next thing and and just want to do I've talked to Timothy Chalamet mm-hmm. about this. We were talking about it the other day. Someone asked, would I want to do like another 40-year-old virgin? Like we we're doing a Q&A with the audience mm-hmm. and a 40-year-old virgin type of movie, like another Judd movie mm-hmm. or some big raucous comedy and ask the same question of Timothy. Mm-hmm. And we're at such, you know, he's he's exploding right now and he's got all of this stuff going on. And he said, yeah, sure. You know, and what struck me, he said, sure, if it's good. Mm-hmm. And I feel exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If, if I feel like there's some merit to it and it might, might turn out well, you never know. Even when you think to, uh, office as well, or oh, the office, you know, here's my idea. Mm-hmm. I think the office cast should get together and reboot cheers <laughs> <laughs> and I'll play Sam. <laughs> Would that be better? I think it would be better. Well, whatever it is, very excited to see. And and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.